You're listening to the Converging Paths podcast, brought to you by Asia House and the Barakat Trust, with the support of the Al Tajir Trust and the Aga Khan Trust for Culture. Hello, this is your host, Juan de Lara, Cultural Manager at Asia House. Welcome back to another of our episodes of the Converging Paths series. Today we have for you a magical, eye-opening account of a journey into a Europe that rarely makes the news, that of Muslim Europe. This episode is a vivid reimagining of the cultural heritage of the continent and will be unveiling forgotten Muslim communities, empires and their rulers. And this quest will force us to reconsider and reflect on what makes up our own identities. To guide us through, we have here with us Saif al-Rashidi, director of the Baraka Trust, and Tariq Hussein. Tariq is an author, travel writer, and journalist specializing in Muslim heritage and culture. He has been a BBC broadcaster and is the author of several Lonely Planet guides. And he will be publishing around July, I believe, a new book titled Minarets in the Mountains, A Journey into Muslim Europe. Welcome, Tariq. Welcome, Saif. It's wonderful having you here today with such a thought-provoking topic. Well, thank you, Juan, and welcome, Tariq, and thank you very much for being on our podcast series. Thank uh, you for having me on. It's, it's a real honor. Thank you. So your career has seen you focus on revealing little-known stories of Muslim communities and cultures. And I wondered what led you on that path and how you started. I guess if I'm honest, you know, being a journalist during a time when the representation of Islam in the media really is very rarely positive, that has to be one of the key motivations. I decided that if through my travel writing, I'm able to reveal more of the beauty of Islamic heritage, but also the ways in which Muslim heritage in places we least expect it has manifest itself. I felt like it would help to normalize the idea of, you know, a Muslim cultural heritage in places like Europe, where we often hear the narrative suggesting that Islam is not indigenous to this place. It, it doesn't have a space here. It's new. It's alien. And, and I guess if I'm very, very honest, that was one of the key motivations for me to try and redress that because I knew it was a falsehood. And... Did you start as a travel writer writing about the Islamic world or did you generally start as a travel writer and then gravitate towards writing about the Islamic world? Yeah, I started really as a travel writer in that respect, but I started as a journalist long before that in news journalism many, many moons ago. In fact, I was a, I was a young journalist when 9-11 happened. And so there is no denying that that had a massive impact on my psyche and my thinking. When I made the switch to travel journalism, I wanted to create Firstly, I wanted to make sure that my travel writing was something that brought to the table a Muslim voice. Okay, because I felt like that was missing in mainstream travel. So that was really important for me, the perspective of a Muslim voice, because most of the travel writers are clearly, you know, the, the conventional travel writers in the English speaking world tend to be white middle class men, uh, middle aged men. And I wanted to kind of bring a different voice. But then when I when I looked at what my passions are, when I looked at what my specialisms are, and of course, my education and my interests, then Muslim heritage became the niche that I wanted to focus on. And, and again, going back to my earlier response, it was also because I felt a lot of this was underrepresented, but there's no denying, and you can see this in my writing and the other stuff I do, I get very excited about 
about Muslim heritage, as I do about most cultural heritage and most religious heritage. But, you know, I felt like the Muslim heritage was badly underrepresented. And I felt like travel writing was a great vehicle to, to bring it to the fore. And was it hard initially to find people interested in, in what you were planning to write about? I think um, my timing is everything. And around the time I began writing these things, it was quite obvious that more and more people around the world, be they Muslims or non-Muslims, were clearly piqued by the, by the idea of Islam, by the idea of Muslims, Muslim culture, Muslim heritage. And so when, when I was writing about it, whether they, whether they came to it for the right reasons or not, there was a definite hunger for it. Obviously, Muslims were fascinated because it was teaching them something new about their own heritage. Non-Muslims were often fascinated because I was talking about um, Muslim heritage in places that they really did not expect, whether that was the UK, whether that was the US, whether it was, you know, far off places like the Baltic that they just did not imagine Islam to be manifest in. But to answer your question, yes, I, I do think there is a genuine interest because it was clearly something that was lacking. The other aspect of it is, of course, there is a huge growth in Muslims actually traveling. And, you know, with, with Muslims traveling, increasingly they wanted to go to places where they could explore heritage that would be of interest to themselves. And it was pretty apparent that the work I was producing and the writing I was doing was filling that void. And speaking about heritage in the UK, actually, I first got to know you through a trail that you did of Muslim heritage in the UK. I wondered if you could tell us a bit about that project, what it sought to achieve and how it did it. Again, I guess, um, as with my travel writing, the purpose of the trails was to really make visible some ignored heritage within the UK. The, the Muslim history and heritage of Britain is very badly underrepresented. And a lot of people have the impression that the Muslim history, um, the history of Islam and Muslim culture in this country begins with the post-colonial migration of people like my father. But in fact, it goes all the way back, right back to the 8th century with, you know, people like King Offa, who had clearly minted a coin. It's in the British Museum that has the Shahada on it. And that is evidence that there was contact with the Islamic world, if nothing else. I mean, people have speculated as to why he did that. Now, what my trails tried to do is make a little bit more of that history visible. And it's centered around the country's first purpose-built mosque, which was built towards the end of the 19th century by a fascinating individual, a, a Jewish Orientalist who himself was fascinated by Islam. But not just the mosque, he also established the country's very first Muslim cemetery there. And in fact, because it predates the mosque, it could arguably be the very first Muslim space anywhere. And what, what we discovered when I worked on this project with the Everyday Muslim Heritage Project is that so many fascinating British Mus convert Muslims, these, these are Muslims who are born and bred Brits, what you might call indigenous Brits, many of them who had converted early on, who had played a massive role in developing a flourishing Muslim community in and around the mosque were buried there and their stories had been largely forgotten. The purpose of the trails is to offer an accessible way to engage with these narratives again. But also the other thing that the trails really do, and just to be clear to the listeners, the trails, there's two trails. One goes between the three major sites, which is the mosque, the cemetery, and uh, a Muslim soldier's burial space, all around the town of Woking. 
And the, the second trail is a walk through the cemetery to some of these very, very fascinating graves. And what that walk in particular reveals is just how interconnected Britain was with the rest of the world. Obviously, being a global empire until very recently was one of the reasons. But we, we soon found that this was the final resting place of some of the last kings of Yemen, the, the Sultan of Oman, um, the last Ottoman princess. And of course, along with that, we found famous English translators of the Quran. We found lords, ladies, royals who, who converted to Islam back in the day, so to speak. And it was for me, it was very important as a Brit that this Muslim heritage, my Muslim heritage, our British heritage is made more visible and accessible. And what kind of responses did you get to those trails? The response initially was fantastic. We had a, a huge launch where the chairman of Historic England turned up and, and launched the two trails and actually revealed that he has a connection to Marmaduke Pictor, the famous Quran translator, which was brilliant in itself. And then because the launch happened in July 2019, we didn't have much time before the global pandemic took place. But one, uh, as well as having loads of people turn up and tell us how amazing it was and how grateful they were, we also had the Oxford University ask us to take them around the trails so they could bring their history department, complete with all the dons and professors and their students, because in their words, they felt like these trails had the capacity to potentially decolonize the mainstream historical narrative of Britain. And you mentioned the coin from the 8th century. Mm -hmm. And the first purpose-built mosque in the 19th century in Woking, mm -hmm. was there anything um, that survived in between. In between the two? Yes, of course. There were many things. And I will just give you some nuggets, safe examples of engagement with the Ottomans during the time of Elizabeth I. We, we know that there are many, many plays that were put on in, in London, for example, that were about the Prophet Muhammad. We know that the, there was trade going on with the Muslim empires in Spain and there was trade going on with the uh, Muslim empires in, in the Ottomans as well. There are there are lots and lots of snippets and there are also examples of place names as well. So recently there was an academic on, on social media who spoke about the fact that there, there's a place near Lincolnshire called Mahomet's Mound, which of course you and I both know is the um, Orientalist or, or the archaic way of saying Muhammad's Mound. The, the academic also revealed that according to her research, they, there was clearly several people called Muhammad during the medieval period. So there was lots going on in between. But yes, there's no denying that a lot of the history before that, between Offer's Coin and the Trails, still needs a lot of work and a lot of research. And there is so much there that, that needs to be explored. And it is very ill-explored, in my opinion. And moving on from uh, British Muslim trails, you've recently embarked on an exploration of Europe's Muslim heritage at large, and I wondered how that came about. It's all wrapped up in the, in the same broad narrative. And I guess I, I, I should tell you a little personal story. You know, I, around the time when 7-7 um, took place in the UK, I, I decided that I was going to migrate to Saudi Arabia because I wanted to go and teach English there. But one of, the, one of the obvious reasons was that I didn't feel very much at home here anymore. I felt like uh, in the wake of what was happening, I, I was beginning to feel less and less like I belonged here and less and less like I was welcomed here. And on my way 
to do my recce of Saudi Arabia before I moved, I bought a very cheap flight to Jeddah um, airport and the flight went via Cyprus. And I had to stop in Lanaka, which is um, one of the towns in the south of um, Cyprus. And as, as I often do, being a traveler and a travel writer, I, it was a long layover because it was a cheap ticket. I decided, you know, let me let me have a look at what's going on in this space. Is there anything interesting? And back then, you know, we didn't have all the all the Internet resources that we have now. So I found out that there was a mosque nearby. Of course, being a Muslim, I thought, great. If nothing else, I can go and pray there. It was called the Hale Sultan Teki Mosque. And when I got there with my wife and my young baby, we, we went off and we had a little exploration. And lo and behold, I found out that the mosque claims to be on the site of the tomb of one of the Prophet Muhammad's aunts, maternal aunts. So this is the first generation of Muslims. And one of them is allegedly buried in Europe. Now, as somebody who was feeling like I didn't belong in Britain, I didn't belong in Europe, this came as a shock to me. And I realized at that moment in time that there was a whole side of European history and heritage that I had no idea about. But at the time, of course, I was on my way to Saudi Arabia. I was leaving it all behind. But when I got to Saudi Arabia and, and, and I lived there for just over a year teaching English, that seed that had been planted began to grow. And during my time in Saudi Arabia, I started to read up about um, Andalusia. And when I mean Andalusia, I mean, of course, the heritage, Al-Andalus. And it really took off from there. And, and I realized that nobody was telling me these stories. And as a Muslim of Europe, I felt like nobody was telling me my stories. So I decided I was going to tell them safe. I think that's the best thing is when you find the gap to decide, well, let me do it myself. It's not always easy, though, Saif. I was a, I, you know, I was a, a married man with children holding down a full-time teaching job you know, and trying to convince the, the people that had the money, whether it was Muslims or non-Muslims, to, to give me this money to go and do this kind of work was nigh on impossible. And one of the reasons was because nobody was doing it. It wasn't happening. It, there, there, was, there was nobody writing about this stuff, so the assumption was nobody was interested in it. It's, a, it's the nature of media. I'm a media teacher by profession. The nature of media is it won't take it won't take too many risks. They, they stick to kind of existing formulas, or at least that was the case until, of course, the Internet came along and social media came along and and just kind of blew all that out of the water. Now, maybe they're more willing to take the risk. But still, I was a brown guy. I was a Muslim guy who wanted to do travel. There weren't any of those. Nobody was that interested. So it took a long time. You know, I'm, the story I gave you was when my daughter was a toddler. She's now about to go to university. <laughs> so that's how long it's taken. So it's been a long journey. It, it's um, certainly been a long journey. And during that long journey, most of it was just me traveling. I didn't start writing straight away. You know, I had to also appreciate that my own understanding of Islam, my own understanding of Muslim heritage, my own understanding of Muslim culture was still very limited. So, in fact, early on, it was just me immersing myself in this, in these stories, learning about this heritage, going to places, but not necessarily writing about it because I didn't feel like, feel like I, I had the capacity. So this book, which studies European Muslims, in part was inspired by a 17th century Turkish travel writer, Evleya Shalabi. And I wondered if you could tell us a bit about him and the ways in which he inspired you. Well, 
Evliya Chelebi is amongst a number of Muslim travelers that I came upon when I began to really get interested into travel writing. You know, you've obviously got the very famous Ibn Battuta, then you've also got Ibn Jubair, um, Ibn Fadlan, and all of these guys I knew almost nothing about. And the more I learned about their stories, the more fascinated I became in the world that they had visited. And being a bit of a history Greek, I loved the idea of seeing a world that had now disappeared, you know. And, and what Elia Chelebi does, he does that for me, for my Europe, because you see... Elia Chelebi was one of the one of those famous travelers that actually covered vast areas of what was then Ottoman Europe and what, of course, I call Muslim Europe, because, of course, Ottoman lands tended to be Muslim lands. And he was this, you know, the, the word Evliya, by the way, is, of course, it, it comes from the Arabic Aulia. And, and, and this, of course, means a, a friend, friends of God. And so Evliya came from this very spiritual background. He was this kind of gentle soul, this fun-loving soul. He was actually, you know, a hafiz. He was a he was very, very well trained, very well versed in the Islamic sciences. But he also came across like this really, you know, fun-loving guy who just wanted to travel and see the world, a bit like me, without all the commitments, because Evelia didn't have a wife and children and everything else. Of course, I have a wife and children, but I took them with me, as you know. And the reason that Evliya was fascinating was primarily because he tells these amazing stories of the places he goes, the, the tombs he sees, the, the different dervishes he meets, the different people he works with, the pashas, the sultans, and, and there's all these wonderful stories that he relates. But for me, it was, it was the idea that I could use him as a window to compare the lands that I was traveling in today to see just how Muslim they remain in comparison. So that was really the main reason that I, I lent on Elia Chelebi. And he's not the most easy person to access as only an English speaker, because most of his writing remains in the classical um, Ottoman Turkish, and I think in, in Farsi as well. And very little of it has actually been translated into English. So I, I was leaning very heavily on some um, little little um, snippets that I was coming across, and, and that's what I used in the main. And how different or similar is the Europe you discovered in your travels from that that Chelebi describes? I would say from a physical perspective, I was quite surprised how much of it was left because I didn't know so much of it was left, even though I've, a lot of it had been eradicated physically as well. But there was so much of it that, in fact, a lot of it has remained. So I was turning up to many of the tombs that he visited. I was turning up to Sufi lodges that he visited. I was turning up to mosques that he and prayed in. So I could literally follow in his footsteps in some places. But in terms of the Muslim communities that he came upon, there are a couple of things that I will quickly highlight that were key, key differences. Number one is that I was astonished by the way in which Elia Chelebi would often describe in a very matter-of-fact way how Muslims, Jews and Christians were living in places like Sarajevo, which is probably the one that most listeners will, will know, and Skopje in, in Macedonia. This surprised me because I was before I, I began this journey and before I wrote this book, I was I was led to believe that, you know, something like that is quite exceptional and it only took place maybe in Sarajevo, which was dubbed the Jerusalem of Europe. Yet Evliya Chelebi, as he goes around what I describe as Muslim Europe, this is quite normalized across Albania, Serbia, you know, um, Bosnia, all of these places. So that's something that is no longer there. And the main reasons that it's no longer there, two reasons, Saif, that your listeners will be very, very conscious of. One, a disgusting and horrible Holocaust took place that annihilated the entire European Jewish community. Right. 
that's something that obviously denies that. Number two, in this particular region, in the fallout of post-communism, we had some horrific ethnic wars that led to genocides on a par in some places with the Holocaust. And this meant that although the Muslims um, in the main survived this Holocaust, the tensions that exist between quote unquote, the Muslim and the non-Muslim in this region, be they Christians or, or people of non, no faith, it's become much more divided, sadly. That's something that comes across loud and clear. Although I did see examples of that, you know, classical coexistence for one another that did that was happening in places and people in people still had it in living memory when it was apparent. But communism did something else that changed Muslim Europe. Communism, especially in places like Albania, where Enver Hoxha, the, the communist dictator, declared that it was going to be the first atheist state in the world. He did away with a lot of the heritage physically and he made it illegal to practice religion. So what we have now is we have this this majority Muslim country in Albania, almost 60% plus, maybe even 70% who are Muslims, but because of what was done to them during Enver Hodja's rule, the Islam is not there in the sense that they it's been eradicated from their memories, from their minds, from their norm, if that makes sense. Say. So some have gone on a journey of rediscovery and others, of course, are simply not practicing it at, at all anymore. So in that respect, that, that, that's another big, big difference. Well, can you tell us about the places that are still Muslim or have a large Muslim community? So the journey that I went on took me through six countries. And the reason that I call it Muslim Europe is because three of those countries, Bosnia and Herzegovina, Albania and Kosovo, all have populations where the people in those countries, the majority identify as Muslim. The other countries around it that we visited, Serbia, North Macedonia and Montenegro, also had large indigenous Muslim communities. They were not Muslim majority places, but they had large indigenous Muslim communities. But all of these places had nearly six centuries worth of Muslim heritage, because for six centuries or so, be it under Ottoman rule or otherwise, there was Muslim culture thriving in these places. Now, in almost all of the countries I've named, Bosnia, Albania, Kosovo, there were places where you would find Muslims that are actively practicing it. It's it's no different in that respect, say, to, to many parts of Western Europe or, or anywhere in the Muslim world where some people practice it, some people don't. But most people still identify as Muslim. So to give you an example, as you say, um, one of the places that left me astonished and shocked, we turned up in the south of Serbia. My family and I, of course, we, we came in late one evening to a town called Novi Pazar, which is taken from the Slavic word for new and the Turkish word for bazaar. So it means new bazaar. And we came in late and we were looking for food and, you know, we'd seen lots of minarets on the way in and we we're thinking, gosh, this is this has got a lot of Muslims in it. And we, we ordered this pizza and we asked, you know, before we ordered it, oh, OK, so you've got sausage on this pizza and whatever is the sausage pork. And the, and the guy laughed, you know, he, he laughed in my face and he said something along the lines of, brother, don't you realize this is a Muslim town? This is the south of Serbia, Saif. You know, before I left, I was under the impression Serbia, it's an Eastern Orthodox country. And yet here I was in a town um, in the south of Serbia, southwest of Serbia, which was almost entirely Muslim. And that evening, as we sat eating our pizza in the town square, there was this stage in front of us, and we didn't really know why the stage was set up. We sat there eating our pizza, and suddenly this group of young girls all turned up 
took the stage and began singing in this beautiful voice, like a kind of Muslim choir, these wonderful Islamic songs, which are known possibly by most people as nasheeds. But they also sang these songs which had Slavic words, which are clearly localized Islamic songs. So there you have in a moment a picture of the kind of unexpected nature of the places that we went to that were clearly quite Muslim. And if you could choose one place that best embodies the spirit of Muslim Europe as you found it, what would it be? I, I think that's, that's difficult for a couple of reasons. One, because there were so many. And two, because what I really loved, one of the things that I really, really loved about the spirit, as you say, of Muslim Europe is very difficult to grasp now because one of the members or the biggest members of that community is no longer there because of course the Jews of this region have been decimated or those that managed to survive the horrific Holocaust um, moved on and left the country to places like Israel and so on. So it was very difficult to see and witness that kind of what, what is known in local Bosnian language as komsiluk, which is, which is comparable to la convivencia in, in Muslim Spain, which some of your listeners will know. It's this idea of coexistence, peaceful coexistence. In komsiluk, I think, translates more easily to good neighborliness. And this was apparent across the region. But of course, most famously, we, we know about it in Sarajevo. Um, and Sarajevo, of course, has this wonderful square, which is overlooked by a synagogue, overlooked by a church and a mosque. And actually, this is not that uncommon. Um, and so for me, this is the most beautiful thing I discovered about the historic side of Muslim Europe. Because when you think about it, Saif, something that has been clearly overlooked, and I try to bring to the attention of my readers, is Combined with Muslim Europe, if you look at the ways that Jews were treated on and off across Europe generally, and then you look at how they were treated in Muslim Europe largely, and then you, you see when, when that comes to an end with the Sephardic Jews being kicked out by the Catholic monarchs in the late 15th century, after that they are taken to the Ottoman lands in the Balkans um, by Bayezid. Um, Sultan Bayezid actually sends boats and brings them over. And so then they survived there for at least until the early 20th century, when, of course, we see the horrors of, of the Holocaust. So in short, for 12 centuries, some of the safest spaces for Jews in Europe was under different Muslim rulers. And of course, this is not to deny that there weren't the odd Muslim rulers who were extreme and treated them badly or whatever. But from the time of Muslim Spain, right to the end of the fall of the Ottomans and, and of course, the horrific Holocaust, um, Jews across Europe felt largely safe under European Muslim rule. And that's something me as a Muslim of Europe, I felt very proud because that's my heritage. I felt very proud that we, we protected these, um, you know, these discriminated and, and people who, who experienced so much prejudice. Well, I mean, you did a lot of work on British Muslims and your more recent project, which culminated in a forthcoming book, Minarets in the Mountains, focuses on Balkan Europe and Muslims there. What do you think the main differences are of the stories of Muslims in Britain and Muslims in the former Ottoman lands? How do they differ as European Muslims? So the key difference really has to do with the fact that the majority of Muslims in Britain today are the result of post-colonial migration, 
or later migrations of some sort, be they refugees or otherwise. So what we have in places like, for example, um, London, is we have this melting pot of Muslims that have come from all over the Muslim world with their own ideas and their own notions and interpretations and theologies on how Islam should be practiced. And so you, if you were to walk around a place such as London, and I know London doesn't typify Britain, but it certainly typifies the diversity of Britain. Um, if you were to walk around London, you would come across Muslims who are practicing Islam in the way that you might see it in the Maghrib, the no um, North African lands. You come across Muslims who are practicing it in the way that you see it in the Middle East in places like Saudi Arabia, you come across Muslims who are practicing it in the way of the Southeast Asians um, and the South Asians in places like um, Indonesia and Bangladesh and India. Whereas when you go to the former Ottoman lands, you have a much more feel of some kind of uniformity here, like um, Bosnia, which is a good example to use, or somewhere like Bosnia, which is a former uh, as you as you've described former Ottoman lands, because Bosnia has such a deep history and heritage of Islam. First of all, Islam doesn't feel alien there. It feels completely at home and it feels completely natural to, to sort of hear the church bells on Sunday and hear the Adhan on a daily basis. That's the first thing. It feels very much at home. But more importantly, from, from the perspective of what are the differences, what you see over there is Bosnia has centralized, shall we say, the, the Islamic community. They have a muftiya. They have an education system. They have they have higher education institutes where they are training imams, and these imams are then sent out to various mosques across the land. Um, and so you have a much more uniform, at least from the outside, it looks like a much more uniform way of um, how Islam is being practiced because they already have a historic tradition. And yes, that tradition in maybe in spirit and in theology can be traced back to places like Turkey and, and other Turkic or former Ottoman lands, but it's clear that they already have a tradition that they embrace. Whereas Britain, being a former colonial master, has a lot of the former col colonies, uh, Muslim colonies coming over. And of course, with them, they bring their distinct, quote unquote, brand of Islam. And for someone who discovers or lands in Muslim Europe, as you call it, for the first time, what do you think the most striking things would be, the, the biggest surprises? I think there are a couple of things that will surprise them. One of the things that will obviously surprise them is to come across indigenous Europeans who are blonde-haired, blue-eyed, and are Muslim. Not because they converted, as you might find in a country like Germany, France, or the UK. These are people whose great-great-great-great-grandparents are Muslim. There is, there is no conversion story there. There is no reversion story there. So I think that's going to astonish a lot of people. People who look just like them in Western Europe are indigenously Muslim in this part of the world and in this part of the continent. That's the first thing. The second thing that I think is going to surprise them and bowl, and bowl them over is the sheer depth of the Islamic heritage that is still there, the Muslim heritage. The number of mosques that are still there that are probably older than, you know, the Sistine Chapel, as I put it in my blurb for the book. The, the number of um, tombs of saints, the, the number of techies, um, the number of old madrasas, where, where institutes of education, the number of hammams, all, all these wonderful, you know, monuments that are still there, bridges, whatever, but also the people who built them. These were some, among some of the great Muslims of history, whether it's Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent, whether it's the great Mimar Sinan, and um, whether it's these characters 
um, you know, they, they built so many things there that have um, up to this point been overlooked, undervalued, and, and most people don't even know they're there. And that's what's really, really, you know, going to shock a lot of people, the depth of it. I mean, reflecting on what you say about Muslim Europe and its diversity and your long experience covering the Muslim world, what do you think are the ingredients for the creation of tolerant and heterogeneous societies and communities that thrive together? I think historically, when I've gone to places, whether they're Muslim or not, where there is a history of, of coexistence and tolerance. And, you know, I, I want to bring in a non-Muslim example just so people appreciate this, that I, I have explored this. So, for example, when I looked at uh, medieval Lithuania, the Grand Duchy of Lithuania, this was a pagan, largely a pagan empire, so to speak. And yet it made Muslims feel very, very welcome and allowed um, and, and they lived there in, in comfort and their community has existed even to this day. And the reason that this has been successful is purely and simply because of a genuine respect for the other person's way of life. But not just, we, we, we often use the word tolerance. Tolerance suggests you're putting up with something, Saif. It has to be more than tolerance. It has to be acceptance. It has to be acceptance that this is how this person lives their life. And that's, that's okay. I'm comfortable with that. And I'm happy for them to be my neighbor. And I'm happy for them to go and practice their faith and do what they do and, you know, speak to their Lord and, you know, read their scriptures. And if anything, I am going to actually actively protect that. That's what needs to come from the leadership of these kind of spaces. And we see that really in the what I believe to be the real spirit of Islam. And I'm going to go, I'm going to take you back to Egypt. We, we, we see this in a place some, such as St. Catherine's Monastery, where if we go into this monastery, we will find this document known as the Astiname, which is allegedly, and of course, we, you know, I haven't done the research to tell you whether it's authentic or not. This is allegedly a document that was sent the original one anyway, this is a later copy by the Ottomans, as far as I'm aware. The original document was sent by the Prophet Muhammad to this monastery, to this Christian sacred space, and it guarantees their safety. In fact, if I remember correctly, and I looked at it a long time ago, the exact wording is it doesn't just guarantee it, it actively protects it. And if necessary, Muslims are even told to go and fix the roof if it's leaking. This is the true spirit of coexistence in a peaceful and happy way. Thank you. How has travel writing changed your own perspective on your own cultural identity or your thinking of Europe? And So in the time that I've been able to travel, and I realize I'm very privileged that I'm able to travel, um, the pandemic has highlighted that more than anything. I guess one of the things it's made me realize because of the exploration I've done into European Muslim heritage is made me feel like I belong here a lot more than I did when I began these journeys, because there are places that I can connect to. There are people that I connect to. When I sit in Sarajevo, when I go to Bosnia, when I go to Kosovo, when I go to Albania, I feel like I belong in these places now, you know, because I know they exist. I never knew they existed before. So I feel like I belong a lot more in these spaces in Europe, but I also feel at home in the world. The, the more I travel, the more I love humanity, because the more I see it, but also, as a Muslim, there is no denying it also plays a role in, in increasing my, my faith, in increasing my, my faith in humanity, which you could argue is also my faith in God. But it develops and it has from the beginning, it has developed a huge respect 
for other people's way of doing things. And the realization and recognition that there are some beautiful, amazing cultures out there that are waiting to be understood and learnt by the rest of us, and that none of it is a threat. We should not be scared of difference. That's the key thing. And that's one of the reasons, Saif, that I always take my family with me when I do these journeys, because I think it's important that when they come away, especially my children, they've realized and they've recognized that there is nothing to fear in other human beings. There's nothing to fear in difference. Difference is beautiful. And they've seen that beauty and they've embraced it. And well, I hope they've embraced it. They've certainly embraced it with me. And that's something that I've really taken from being so privileged to be able to travel around the world. So what advice would you give someone that has never traveled in cultures different from their own? But the reality is a lot of the reasons why people who are um, who have not experienced another another culture or another country different to their own. The reason that a lot of those people don't do it if they have the capacity financially and health wise is because of fear. It's a fear of the unknown. And the only way we overcome the fear of the unknown is to first educate ourselves a little bit of those things that we fear because as you know knowledge is power and 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 knowledge is what dissipates a lot of that fear so i would say to people you know learn about these cultures that you want to go into but also learn about how to travel safely how to travel in a way where you can experience a different culture you know not all of us have the capacity to just throw a rucksack on our back and and not have a plan and jump on a train and end up where we end up that's that's not for everybody so for those that are worried about traveling first learn about the practicalities of traveling and then learn about the very culture that you're about to go into look at the history learn about the food learn about the, the narratives that are there that's what makes a place exciting that's what makes different cultures exciting and for us to share your own story your book minarets in the mountains is coming out soon can you tell yes. us yes we have a we have a launch date now um, it will come out on july the 15th just before the Hajj and just after the Srebrenica Memorial, because we believe both of those are quite relevant and topical to the subject of the book. Well, thank you. I'm sure many of our listeners will relish the thought of sharing the discovery of Muslim Europe through your writing and also hopefully uh, follow your footsteps as you followed the footsteps of Evliya Shalabi before you. That's a very apt way of putting it. I hope so too, because I think one of the things that your readers will appreciate is it's not that there haven't been books written about this particular region, Safe. The difference is there haven't been books written about this Muslim Europe through the eyes of a Muslim. And that's something that they won't have encountered before. Thank you. You were listening to the Converging Paths podcast.